All right, church, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 2 today. You can head that direction. That's going to be the top, well, roughly the middle of page 11 if you're in a scripture journal. If you don't have a scripture journal today, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it looks like this. It just says Exodus on the front. Uh, we'd love to give you one. We have some available here at this table on your way to the kids' hallway if you're going to be picking up any kids today. We also have a few in the lobby this morning. We'd love to give you one of those as our gift to you. Um, I just want to give you a heads up of what's going on the next few weeks. Easter comes at a different time every year. This is one of the joys of uh, church leadership is figuring out when Easter is every year. Last year it happened really late. This year it's going to be the first weekend in April. And so uh, that's really soon, if you can believe that or not. It's almost April in just a couple weeks. So uh, in two weeks we'll observe what's called Palm Sunday. We're going to take a break that week from the Exodus series. We'll finish chapter 2 next week, and then the week after that, uh, we'll look at a parable, a story that Jesus told to try to kind of prime our pump a little bit to prepare our hearts for the Easter week, Holy Week. And then on Easter, on the 4th, we'll also look at another parable that Jesus taught. And so my objective is to preach a parable for the church, more so for kind of religious people on Palm Sunday, and then to clearly communicate a parable on Easter that lays out Jesus' mission and the gospel. And so I want to make you aware of that. We'll jump back into Exodus beginning in chapter 3, the week after Easter on the 11th. And if you're still making your way to Exodus 2, I, I want to pause this morning and just give you an update on the vision of the church. This was the most recent sermon series that we preached, and uh, I made some commitments to you as part of that series, some steps that we would be taking as church leaders to try to bring the vision to fruition, to go from theory into reality. And so uh, a couple of weeks ago, we established a team that we're calling the Vision Implementation Team. It has six members, and I want to actually give you those people's names today because we are taking about the next 30 to 35 days to prepare, to pray together and on our own. Some members of the team will be fasting along the way. And I'm gonna ask you as church members who have a vested interest in the future of the vision of this church to pray for these names, for these individuals. Each of these people are covenant members. They're connected to a life group. They're eager to be involved. But if you look at this list of names, and these are not six people who you know terribly well, well, part of what's exciting about this team is God has impressed upon these people to take a step of faith and be a part of something that's not what they would normally do. These are not the, the usual players necessarily who lead every team and show up to everything that we ever do. And so I'm really eager and excited, but what we can't do, church, is we can't allow these six people to function in isolation. And so I just, I'm gonna ask you to, to take a role in that and to be praying for them. If you don't have time to write all their names down, you can grab your phone, snap a picture of that. If you have a, a prayer list, if you do a prayer journal, these would be six great names to add to your own time of intercession. And we're gonna have more information for you really soon. In the next couple of weeks, we'll talk about how this process is going to work. What does this team do? How can you communicate with them? Do you want to do that or not? In the meantime, if you have any questions at all about the vision of the church, if you want to start making recommendations or suggestions of ministries that you think we should either get involved in or start, you can email vision, V-I-S-I-O-N, at truenorthalaska.com. We'll be really happy to connect with you, answer your questions. That email address is available to every member of the implementation team as well as myself and the elders, but we're the only people who can see it. So feel free to ask questions and we'll do our best to get back with you. So let's get into Exodus today. Exodus 2. Verses 1 through 10 is our objective this morning. This is the origin story of our hero. If you've ever been into comic books before, there's a little bit of that going on here with Moses. He's obscure. He comes out of nowhere. There's some really interesting circumstances around his birth. And God, in the way that he inspires Moses, because that's who actually wrote the book of Exodus way later when he was older, the way that he inspires Moses to write this story plants all kinds of seeds for us 
about what's coming, what God's going to do. So let's start in verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. We don't find this out for four more chapters, but the man's name is Amram and his wife's name is Jacobed. I'll be using their names some this morning, so I want you to know who I'm talking about. Okay, Amram and Jacobed. The woman conceived and she bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, and she daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it, and she placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Just a couple of other quick notes for you. Very interesting, the, the Hebrew word basket is the same word for the ark that shows up at the beginning of Genesis. Same idea. A vessel created in order to survive waters that are intended to kill, also covered in bitumen and pitch. Those are not really words that we use anymore. Think like asphalt and tar. In the Middle East, if you don't know, there's oil everywhere. And one of the byproducts of oil bubbling up out of the sand is these big tar pits. And the people of God knew that. And so Jacobed, in attempting to waterproof this basket, goes and gets tar and literally tars the underside of this, what's essentially a torpedo that's supposed to survive the raging Nile River as it heads out into the Mediterranean Sea. So I don't know what version of the children's story of Moses you've seen before, but the nice, clean, hand-woven basket is probably not what we're talking about. This thing was like a tank because it was holding her only son and was supposed to keep him alive in in the waters of the Nile. So what I want you to understand first, the big point that we're going to make this morning is that the gospel advocates for the oppressed. Now you're thinking, the gospel, we're in Exodus chapter 2. Where's Jesus in all this? Well, I'm going to try to point that out to you. Because like I told you earlier, this chapter is really stuffed with foreshadowing. Lots of little details here are representative of not only what God's going to do in the book of Exodus among the nation of Israel, but these are prototypes. These are representations of what Jesus will do for us in our lives as modern believers as he delivers us from the spiritual oppression that we find ourselves in. The oppression in Exodus is primarily physical, But we see a parallel there for the way that Jesus arrives and sets us free. In the very first verse of this chapter, we find out which tribe Moses is from. And that is so boring to you and you don't care. But let me tell you why that matters. Because for Moses to come from the tribe of Levi demonstrates to us the very earliest version of priesthood is already in play here. Once the nation of Israel leaves Egypt, because, spoiler alert, they get out. We're going to get there eventually. I know we're taking our time, but we're going to get there. Once they get out of Egypt, they cross the Red Sea, God gives them his law. It's the very first time that God has written down and articulated clearly the way that people ought to live since sin broke creation in the Garden of Eden. Before that moment, the law was on our hearts, just like it is now because we're saved by Jesus and we live under a new covenant of grace. But this is a point in the life of Israel where they're given the law, and along with the law comes a system, a system of mercy that's built on the idea that sinful people need intercession. Sinful people need to be advocated for. And the only people in the nation of Israel for the entire duration of its multi-thousand-year lifespan who are allowed to be priests come from the tribe of Levi. In fact, it becomes Moses' job in Exodus 32 and 33 to actually ordain the first round of Levite priests who are his brothers and cousins so that they can participate in this practice. So for Moses to come from the tribe of Levi is communicating to us that God is intentional in planting a seed of priesthood 
in putting together a plan that doesn't break any of the rules that he hasn't even revealed yet. This is one of the mysteries of these covenants that we're looking at, is God doesn't change his plan. He doesn't change the rules, but each covenant he reveals helps us understand a little bit more of what he's always been doing. And so the priesthood is planted in the life of Moses. If you don't know what a priest is, a priest is primarily an advocate. You may have had some experience in sort of a high church model of another denomination in the past where a priest was somebody that you confessed to or a priest was somebody who visited you almost like a pastor would. Uh, As New Testament Protestants, we don't believe that we necessarily need a priest to intercede between us anymore. But in the Old Testament, God's people did. And in standing before God with sinful people behind you and God in front of you, the work of a priest was just to advocate. It was to say to God, please God, don't kill all these foolish people behind me. Please God, don't do that. Please, I know they deserve it. I know that I deserve it. I've done my very best to be as clean as I possibly can to stand before you. I know that I'm still dirty. I'm just doing that to demonstrate to you that I care about this. Would you please be merciful to us? Would you please forgive us? It's the same foundation that you and I have in our relationship with Jesus. It's the same actionable economic position where we have nothing to offer God. He has everything to offer us, but what he owes us is wrath, not love. And so we need somebody to stand between us and God. I'll give you a specific example. When the people of God make it out of Egypt, when they are kind of camped out at the base of the mountain where Moses gets the law, the Ten Commandments from God, they decide that they're going to have a worship service. They're going to praise God for what he's done, but they do it really, really poorly. They do a terrible job. They admit to each other and to themselves and kind of elevate the idea that God did something for them. They can see evidence that he set them free from Egypt, but they actually make it all about themselves. Like they don't understand God having set them free as an example of God demonstrating his own glory and his own value. They feel like they must be amazing for God to go to all this trouble to set them free. They must really be God's gift to the earth. If we're not careful, we'll creep into that. That'll creep into our mindsets as well as Christians in the way that we worship. But they go so far as to take all these things that God has done. I mean, think of the miracles these people have seen at this point. If you don't know the story, I'll just tell you. They survived 10 plagues in Egypt. They are finally set free by a man who swore on his life he would never let that happen. They cross an extremely large body of water and none of them get wet. They are led during the day by a pillar of cloud, which sounds kind of like cute, but I think you could probably think of it as more of like a tornado, like a whirlwind whipping around, incredibly powerful, representative of God leading his people. And then at night, that turns into a flaming tornado, which is even crazier, okay? They've seen these things. They know that God did this for them. And the first time they, ha- they get to stop and make camp and worship him, instead of lifting up the name of God, they take all the jewelry that they own, they melt it down and make a cow. And I know that sounds stupid. It is. It was a stupid choice. But that's what they did. And they decided to attribute to that cow all that God had done for them. Maybe you're not connecting with this example. I'll say it to you this way. They see evidence of God keeping his promises and they misattribute that to the same idols that their previous country and culture used to worship. They give to other things what God deserves. The glory, the worship, the honor. God's people end up looking no different from the very thing that they were set free from. Now, does that ring any bells for any member of any church in 2021, huh? Yeah, we're the same. People have always been the same. So when that happens, God takes that personally. God gets very angry because he's a jealous God, and he should be. He wants us to worship him because it's best for us. He's not an egomaniac. He understands that we were programmed and hardwired to do that. So he demands our worship when we don't give it to him. He responds to that. In the very first moment of 
a, a man interceding that we see in the Bible. It's Moses there. He's on the mountain with God. He came up there to get the law, and in the process, God speaks to him and says, look down there into the camp. In fact, it's Joshua, a guy who ends up becoming the leader of Israel after Moses dies, who comes to Moses and says, it sounds like, like I hear the sounds of battle down in the camp. I hear the sounds of war. I hear a lot of metal moving and, and clinking as the people take off their jewelry. I hear screaming. It's kind of this visceral moment. It doesn't sound necessarily like worship. And when God looks down at the people, he says to Moses, this is not going to work. I told my people to worship me. I laid out in my covenant the plan that I had for them, and they can't in their hearts be loyal to me. They just don't have the capacity to do it. So here's the solution, Moses. I'm going to wipe them out, and we'll just start over with you. This is kind of the fourth time that God talks about doing this in Scripture, right? He just, his people are so far gone. He says, I have to judge their sin, and you seem to be wanting to do the right thing at least, so we'll just start over with you. You're still part of the descendants of Abraham. I don't have to break my covenant to do that. Here's where Moses steps in. He comes before the Lord and very humbly says to God in prayer, God, did you lead your people out of Egypt so that the Egyptians could watch you kill them in the desert? Is that really what you did? Was your plan, is your goal truly to go to all this trouble, do all these miracles, and then give up on them because they're sinful and wicked? And God says, you know what? You're right. I won't forget my covenant with Abraham, and I will keep my promise to you, and I will redeem, I'll reconcile through redemption, not through destruction, like I told you that I would. So yeah, he, I, I, fine, I will, I'll forgive, I'll be forgiving first. And you, Moses, as an advocate, have now stood between me and my people, and you've represented them in a way that I can show them mercy. And that's what a priest does. And Moses is uniquely equipped to do that. When Moses advocates for Israel on that mountaintop, do you know who he's representing? Jesus. This is how we can connect this idea to the gospel. The gospel advocates for the oppressed. Priesthood advocates for the oppressed. In Moses, we see the gospel of grace. And this is really the first example of a full-time advocate in the Bible getting in front of God and begging God to be merciful instead of being wrathful. Moses was advocating for an oppressed people. When the people of Israel left Egypt, it wasn't like they left all the damage of sin behind them, all the slavery they had endured, the systemic oppression, the personal oppression that they had lived through. You don't get to just wash your hands and then leave that behind you. It follows you. Even if you heal, it's a part of your story. And what Moses was able to graciously do on the mountaintop was appeal to God that the people down in the valley didn't know any better. They weren't sorry. Do you understand that? They didn't know that they were wrong and they chose to be wrong anyway. They didn't stop in the middle and go, oh no, we shouldn't have done this. And not a single one of them asked Moses to advocate for them. He did it because he was an advocate, not because he was going to get something out of it or because they had begged him to do it. And there is a clear parallel between that and you and I and Jesus. The Bible tells me that Jesus died for me before I knew that I was wrong. But the gospel of Jesus is that he died for me when I wasn't sorry. And that he did it knowing that I didn't even have any idea. I, I would have never asked him to do it. I didn't go to God and say, hey, I've got a great idea. What if your son dies instead of me? It wasn't my plan. No, I was going to rush headlong into my own self-destruction and then whine and cry when I got there because I'm a human being and that's how we live, right? So Moses is demonstrating to you and I that when an intercessor, when an advocate is in play, they're not in play to represent a bunch of nice, clean, good people. An advocate advocates on behalf of people who can't even speak for themselves. So here's the application that I want you to catch, church. If we are followers of Jesus, and if the story of Exodus is our story, then as gospel people, we also advocate for the oppressed. 
That's our responsibility. Because we're priests. Did you know that? Maybe you didn't. Listen to these verses from 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter writing to the believers, uh, kind of what we call the diaspora, but the believers as they've spread across the new world, he says this. He says, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. That's not just fancy flowery language. That's a direct connection to what it means to be a priest in the Old Testament, which starts with Moses. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If that's not the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham, nothing is. Then I'm going to put you in a place, I'm going to save you, and then I'm going to show you off so that people will know who I am. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. When an advocate stands in God's presence on behalf of other people, the advocate takes on the responsibility of potentially enduring a little bit of God's wrath. As the Old Testament system of sacrifice and priesthood advances, there aren't just priests from the tribe of Levi, but there's what's called a high priest. And the high priest has a responsibility one day a year to go into the most inner chamber of the Holy of Holies in the temple and actually stand in God's presence, which is a thing that's supposed to kill you immediately because people are sinful and sin can't exist in God's presence. This is why we need Jesus in the first place. In order for the, the high priest to even survive that experience, he has to walk in backwards. He has to be ceremonial, ceremonially clean for a very long period of time. He, he doesn't even, like, Traditionally, he doesn't even speak to anybody for like a couple of weeks just to make sure he doesn't accidentally sin or lust or feel anger or hatred or rage. It's his nature because he's a human, but he does his best not to. And when he goes into the Holy of Holies, sometimes he's not clean and he dies anyway. Like they would oftentimes tie bells all over the clothes of the high priest so that all the priests could be waiting outside the Holy of Holies and listening. Is he still jingling around in there? Okay, he's still alive. If he stopped moving long enough, a lot of times there was a rope connected to him and they would pull him back out because they can't go in and get him or they're going to die too. Now, if that feels crazy to you, you probably have a pretty low view of God's holiness. So welcome to a high view of God's holiness. There's a moment when Moses, as an adult man, in the same setting where he receives the law, is communicating with God and he says to God, God, just show me your glory. I've spent all this time following you. I'm an old man. He's almost 100 years old at that point. Can I just see you? Will you just give me a glimpse of heaven? And God's like, I can show you a little bit of me, but I'm going to have to cram you into some rocks on a mountainside and position you just so, and then I'm going to cover you with my hand when I walk by. And you'll just barely be able to see the back of my glory. So from God's perspective, it's gracious and kind of him to not just thrust himself into our lives because it would kill us, it would short-circuit us. But what the advocate has to do is be willing to try to survive that encounter in order to represent a group of people who never would, who couldn't do it. So when you and I think about advocating for the oppressed around us, what we are thinking about is an extension of the priesthood. So how do we do that? How do you and I be priests on behalf of our culture? How can we be priests on behalf of our city? What does that look like? What do we do? Well, it looks like intercession. It looks like willingly standing in the gap between God, who is full of wrath against sin, but has also paid for the price of that wrath in Jesus, and it looks like praying for those people. So I'm going to ask you practically, really, like in your life, the people around you who you know, who don't know Jesus, do you ever pray for them? Do you ever at all ask God to save them? 
Do you ever, like Moses, stand in God's presence and say, God, these people don't know any better, they're not sorry, and they didn't ask me to do this, but would you please, please show them mercy? Because if you don't do that, you're never going to share your faith. You won't. But if you'll start with one person in your life and you pray for them, pray for them once a week, pray for them once a day, you will find opportunities to participate in the same mercy that you are asking God to show. And God will honor that. That's what Moses does. Moses is praying for these people, then he has to come down off the mountain and actually take some action. And I'm not going to spoil that story because we're going to get there eventually in this process. But what I want you to understand is that our culture is asking questions like this. Our culture is asking us, what can Christians do about oppression? What can Christians do about personal oppression? Last week we looked at the definition of an oppressor, a person whose desires have become demands. What role can the church play in the life of a person like that and their victims? What role can the church play in the life of people who've been victimized by systems around the world, by things like racism or sexism? How do we help alleviate those things without totally nosediving into humanism where we begin to worship each other? Well, the solution is that we advocate in the same way that a priest has always advocated, and we offer people the only solution that the Bible has ever had, which is Jesus. It's a who, not a what. And yeah, in Exodus, the oppression that we see, it's primarily physical. It's slavery and all of the effects of slavery, and especially the death that comes from slavery. But the life that you and I live, the people who are around us, they are all afflicted by spiritual oppression. And there is a solution to spiritual oppression. If the gospel advocates for the oppressed, then you and I, as gospel people, must also advocate for the oppressed. And if you think back to the vision that we just all finished embracing together, these are ideas that have become core to who we are. If we share the gospel explicitly, what we are sharing is the story of Jesus advocating for humanity. That's what the gospel is. Hebrews says we have a great high priest who now sits in the presence of God because his work is done. He is uniquely equipped to do the work of intercession because he's perfect. Every other high priest dies eventually. Jesus already did that, and he's back, and it's not going to happen again. So he's able to intercede perfectly, and that is a beautiful thing to be able to tell a person in your life. That whether you believe in God or hate God or want nothing to do with the church or want desperately to know God, it doesn't matter what position you find yourself in, Jesus is already right now praying for you. Jesus is, and all I'm doing is joining him if I'm praying for you along the way. We say that we show mercy to our neighbors. The mercy that we show is the mercy of an advocate. It's a person who isn't just trying to fix people. Moses doesn't come marching down the mountain cracking his knuckles because he's going to show God's people what's up because he's so mad at them. But that's the way we often respond to sin when we encounter it in our lives. What if instead we advocated for the people that were running from God and rebelling against him? What if our tone was that of someone who had something to offer and who cared enough to put our own necks on the line to, a, to benefit a person who is far from God? And we say that we shape our community, and we do that with the same hope that we find at the cross of Christ, because, at the cross of Christ excuse me, because it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And that means this. Let me come full circle. That means that something trivial, like which tribe a Hebrew baby was born into, in the first verse of the second chapter of the book of Exodus, can actually help you and I understand the person and the work of Jesus in a way that we would not be able to do without that information. So how good is God to give us this Bible that works together in this way? Because that's what we want, isn't it? We want to see Jesus clearly, we want to know him better, and we want to join him in his mission. Then we shouldn't be surprised that even in the details of the birth of Moses, we see signs pointing us to Jesus as a reconciler. Jesus as a mediator, as an intercessor, as our advocate, the gospel 
advocates for the oppressed, whether it be spiritual or physical, and gospel people do that too. So there's a lot on the line for baby Moses here, right? This is a big deal. This is a kid that needs to not drown in the river like a lot of the other babies did. There has to be something that's going to happen that's surprising, that goes against what we would expect in order for this little baby boy, three months old, to survive this process and actually become the man who can lead the people out so that we can have a priesthood, so that there is a prototype of Jesus, so that you and I can advocate. No pressure, right? No big deal? Yeah, so let's keep reading in verse 4. See what God does here. God is subversive. Okay, just a little hint for you. Watch some of the things that God is able to do here. It's amazing. Verse 4. Moses' sister, her name is Miriam. We find that out later in the book. Miriam stood at a distance on the shore of the Nile in order to know what would be done to Moses. Now the daughter of Pharaoh, whose name we don't know, came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked with her, excuse me, beside the river. She saw the basket, the ark, that Jechebed put together for baby Moses floating among the reeds, and she sent her servant woman, and that servant woman took it and brought it to Pharaoh, to Pharaoh's daughter. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. So she took pity on him, and she said out loud, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister, Moses' sister Miriam, who's waiting on the banks of the river, called out to Pharaoh's daughter and asked her a question. She said, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go, yes. So the girl went and she called the child Moses' mother, Jechebed. Pharaoh's daughter said to Jechebed, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. And so the woman took the child and nursed him, and when the child grew older, Jechobed brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and Moses became her son, and she named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Second big idea today, the gospel subverts our expectations. The gospel subverts our expectations. In the seven verses that we just read, five extremely unlikely things happen all in a row, all on the same day. Uh, And this to me is an example of God subverting not only what we expect, but what probably should have happened. If you remember last week, the environment into which baby Moses is born is horrifying. I mean, it is truly Holocaust-level genocide at a national level. There's racism embraced on every level by the Egyptian people. They're all into it. They're excited. Yes, let's oppress the Hebrew people. Yes, let's participate in killing off their newborn sons. Let's keep them small enough that we can control them, but strong enough that they can do us some good. And that's not just Pharaoh at the top. It's everybody. So that's the environment. That's the setting that we are in. I want to just quickly run through these five things and I want to point out to you how God goes against what we would expect without just snapping his fingers and doing a magic trick. He uses the circumstances perfectly to roll out his plan. So first look at verse 6 and see that the Egyptian princess shows pity. This is incredible to me because Egypt has embraced national racism. The Egyptian people have accepted that to be Hebrew is to be subhuman to them. To them, the only good Hebrew baby boy is a dead one, and they have cultivated hatred in their hearts toward the Hebrew people. They did this by partaking in a national policy of death, of slavery. So who does God choose to use to deliver his deliverer, the baby Moses? It has to be somebody who's powerful enough to subvert the law of Pharaoh without paying for it personally. 
There aren't very many of those people who can get away with not doing what the Pharaoh told them to do. But if you've ever had a teenage daughter, you know there's one person who would probably love nothing more than to just gently and carefully and very cleverly subvert the rules of the home a little bit. This goes for boys and girls both, but this is a girl in the story, and that's exactly who God uses. He chooses a young lady who is stuck between national racism and the weight and responsibility of obeying her father, the king, and her own maternal instincts. And God plucks on those heartstrings a little bit, and when she looks at the Hebrew baby boy, she doesn't see an enemy. She doesn't see an animal. She sees her son, potentially. And this is a miracle, church. This is not what we would expect from these circumstances at all. She is able to deliver Moses and have pity on him in a way that we wouldn't expect. Next, verse 7. Miriam, Moses' sister, is near enough to advocate for the baby. Why is this unlikely? Well, the Nile is a big river, if you've never been before. At its widest, it is almost two miles wide, which is very wide. In Pyramses, which is very likely the capital of Egypt at this point in the story and also probably where this part of the story is taking place, Pyramses is in the kind of mid-range of the Nile Delta. If you took geography in high school, you know that the Nile, kind of uniquely among rivers, flows from south to north. It starts in Lake Victoria and then travels north through northeastern Africa and dumps out into the Mediterranean Sea. When it gets close to the sea, the reason you can have a thriving civilization in the middle of a desert is this big river spreads out into a delta, and it kind of branches into like four or five main tributaries that shoot out into the sea, and along their way, they fertilize this massive triangle of land. Well, Pyramses is on the eastern side of that. So the likelihood that Miriam can keep up with this basket along the shore, I mean, she's probably like running while this thing is moving down the river, the river's splitting off different directions, there's homes built right on the water, there'd be lots of Egyptian people down at the edge of the water all day long. It's the only place to get a drink, the only place to take a bath, the only place to get water to cook with. The fact that she could keep up with this is itself unlikely, but then along the way, we have to understand that when you are the daughter of Pharaoh, you don't go take a bath by yourself. Okay, we see at least one servant woman in the story, but very likely she was surrounded by a whole cohort of bodyguards, eunuchs, and servant people. And the chance for a Hebrew girl, who at this point in the story, we think that Miriam is probably between seven and ten years old, the chances of a Hebrew child getting close enough to Pharaoh's daughter to yell out to her without somebody drawing a bow on her and taking her down because she surprised him and made him think that she was there to attack Pharaoh's daughter, this is very low, very low possibility. This is like if there was maybe a presidential uh, parade downtown and you or I thought we had something really specific that we needed to tell the president and we ran out in front of his car and started shouting, what's going to happen to us? Are we going to get invited to sit in there and chat? No, we're not. You know what's going to happen. Yeah, it's not going to be good for us. So this is incredibly unlikely, but it shows God's hand of providence that this child was bold enough to do this. And what does it say about Jechebed? What a nightmare situation to have to live in that this woman has just put her only son in the water and she assigns her seven-year-old daughter to watch him? What is that daughter going to see? An alligator eat him? Him drown? Him get swept out to sea and then never see him again? This is a dark thing, but it's their reality. I don't want you to forget that. We can't overly romanticize this story. Verse 8, the third unlikely occurrence, is that the Egyptian princess actually listens to Miriam. Not only that Miriam gets close enough to communicate, but that the princess takes her seriously. It's cute for us when we see this happen sometimes, when politicians like state senators or every once in a while a president will do this when they invite a child to the state capitol or to the White House. 
right? We all love it. We get a warm, fuzzy feeling when a chubby kid sits at the Resolute desk in the Oval Office and gets to sign a blank piece of paper and hold it up and everybody claps like they just signed an executive order. We think that's funny. Yeah. But it doesn't matter which side of the political aisle you sit on. If the news broke today that our president was receiving real political advice from a first grader, we would all freak out. We would panic. That is what's happening in this story. A first grader who maybe can't read is telling the princess of Egypt what she should do now that she found this baby. And the princess is like, yeah, that sounds good. Let's do that. Good plan. It's crazy. It blows my mind a little bit. And the princess is not participating in a publicity stunt. Okay, Nobody's there taking pictures, getting a really cute story for Instagram. This is a real thing. She is actually taking advice from a child. And again, God subverts what we expect What should have happened based on these circumstances of racism and hatred and dehumanization? Yet the princess follows Miriam's lead. And then number four. This one is huge. Yechebed is chosen as Moses' nurse. If you had the Egyptian princess adopts the Hebrew boy on your bingo card today, congratulations. But what I bet you didn't have was that the Hebrew boy's mother will be paid by her oppressor to break the law of oppression and care for her own son. I doubt that that was on your radar today. And who better for God to send to nurse the baby boy than the woman that God gave the boy to in the first place? There are echoes of Abraham on the mountain with Isaac in this story to me, where a parent is faithful and says to God, God, you take the kid. I don't understand it. I don't like it, but you're God. You do what you want. And God says, great, you can have the kid back. You're now equipped. You're now ready to actually parent this child in a way that's going to be helpful and fruitful to them because you're not idolizing them anymore. You've given them to me, and therefore you can do this the right way. I don't have it to read to you today, but in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 23, the Bible tells us that Amram and Jechebed put Moses in that basket out of faith, not fear. It goes so far as to say explicitly at the end of that verse that they were not afraid of the king at all. They weren't worried about what what the Pharaoh was going to do because they had a high and reverent view of the God of Israel. When she says, when the Egyptian princess says in verse 9, I will give you your wages to Moses' mother, what she is communicating is that Moses' mother is no longer obligated to complete her responsibilities as a slave. She's saying, I'm changing your job. So in a really cool way, the very first person that Moses has the privilege to deliver is his own mother. She is able to embrace him, to be paid to do that. She no longer has to do the backbreaking work of building these store cities in, in the, the Nile Delta and can instead embrace her child and nurture him in the way that he needs to be nurtured in order to be the man that God needs him to be later in his life. And I think that's really beautiful and a little bit easy to miss. Finally, verse 10. This is the best to me. The Egyptian princess names the baby Moses, okay? I can relate to the Egyptian princess here because she makes a pretty big linguistic mistake. I'm going to point it out to you in a second. But I want to tell you a story first. I was raised in northeast Texas. That's where I was born. That's where I grew up. I graduated high school there. I lived there until I moved to Kentucky and then we moved to Alaska. So most of my summers in like junior high and high school, I would participate in a mission trip to northern Mexico to like the state of Chihuahua. There's a couple different cities that we would go to and we would do vacation Bible schools for kids. Well, I tried to learn Spanish. I took Spanish in high school. But I wasn't that good at it. And regularly, myself and my friends, when we were on these mission trips, we would end up putting our feet in our mouths, trying to be slick, trying to adopt some kind of phrase that we heard everybody saying, but we'd say it wrong and end up being really offensive on accident, and everybody would laugh, and we would deal with it. Well, one time in particular, we used to do these skits 
we would go to a plaza. A lot of small Mexican towns have like a big concrete slab in the middle of the city where there's like a playground and people play soccer. And so the kids would gather there and we would have a vacation Bible school. We'd do puppets, we'd do balloons, the whole thing, but we did dramas. Okay, the story I'm gonna tell you is like so 2005 youth group, if you can just connect with me there, all right? Yes, skillet song is playing. Yeah, you know, we've all got on black t-shirts because we're the demons and we're like pulling on. So there's this skit that we would do where there's no speaking, which is great. When you're in Mexico, you don't know how to speak Spanish. You do a skit with no words. But there's two words at the very end. So it's like a 10-minute sketch. And I say sketch, it's not funny, like a drama. There's a guy who represents Jesus. He keeps trying to get to this one guy who's torn. He's like lusting and then he's angry and then he gets into drugs. And then like at the end, he meets Jesus and this guy falls on his knees And in English, he yells out, my sin, my sin. It's just supposed to communicate that he's mourning his sin. Jesus has taken it from him. He sees the beauty, which is a good message, that Jesus took it on. It's not automatic for him. He understands that it hurt Jesus to do that. Well, if you translate that phrase into Spanish, what you're supposed to yell is mi pecado. Pecado would be the verb form for my sin, the things I've done wrong, okay? Mi pecado is what he's supposed to yell. So in this one particular instance, it's like a Thursday night. We're doing this big VBS. We just fed a bunch of people hot dogs and chili. I told you, 2005 youth group. And they're now going over to sit in these big bleachers for us to do this drama. And the music builds, and everybody's like in the right place at the right time. And the guy hits his knees at the very end. The music cuts out, and he yells as loud as he can, Mi pescado. Does anybody speak Spanish? Yes, pescado means fish. Yeah, not sin. So he yells, my fish, as loud as he can. And that's what happened. What you are doing is what everyone else did. That went about as well as you would think. The Egyptian princess makes a very similar mistake. And we got our hearts have to go out to her. We have to be sympathetic here, okay? When she names Moses, how they would have said it in Hebrew is Moshe. Like you got to put a little at the end there. There's like an extra H. That's a very common Hebrew sound, Moshe is Moses, or Moisha is kind of how a modern Jewish person might name their child Moses. Moshe is what she calls him. That sounds very similar to the Hebrew word for drawing out of, which is Masha. Moshe, Moses, Masha, to draw out of. Now what's interesting is, based on what she says in verse 10, her intention is to name the baby based on her own actions. She says, his name is Moses because I... The princess drew him out. In other words, for the rest of his life, I'm never going to let him live down how nice I was to him right away. Yeah, that's the idea. But the mistake that she makes, and this gives me chills, the mistake that she makes is instead of naming him, I have drawn him out, she gets her verb form wrong. Because of course she does, right? She doesn't speak the slave language that well. Instead, she names him Moses, which means he who draws out of. Uh Uh-huh. She thought she was going to be naming this child based on her own heroism in his life, and instead she affirmed his destiny as a deliverer. On accident, right? But not really, because who's doing this? It's God. God is subverting what we expect. She thought she was embracing him, putting him underneath her own authority by giving him a name that would require him to always acknowledge her, yet she simply communicates for the rest of his life that he will be a deliverer. God subverts our expectations. The gospel subverts our expectations. And this is always how God works. Think about Jesus. When Jesus came, Jesus was at the same time exactly who the Old Testament said he would be. 
to the point that he fulfilled prophecies that don't even seem to matter to us. Like the little specific details that don't even really play into his ability to advocate for us, but they're just there to make sure that we know that God has always had this plan. So he's exactly who the Old Testament said he would be, yet he was nothing like who the Jewish nation expected. So he's totally, he fulfills it, but he also subverts it completely. He fulfilled every requirement of righteousness. He delivered his people after they had begged God to do this for thousands of years, and he restored unity between God and man. But the way that he did that made his people so angry that they framed him and publicly executed him as a terrorist and a criminal. Because God subverted their expectations so much that they couldn't handle it. Jesus is the king of kings, yet he was born in a feed trough. Jesus is the liberator of Israel, yet he never touched a weapon in his life. And he is the author of life, yet he alone experienced death to the fullest because the gospel subverts our expectations. The story of Moses is not an anomaly in your Bible. It's normal. It's common. Every book in your Bible tells stories about people who represent Jesus to you and I, who are getting the nation of Israel ready to receive the Messiah when he finally comes. And God's plan and his action and his tactics don't change. From the very beginning... Right? His covenants are what's in play, and what does he use to bring those about? Weak people. We've said this. We'll say it every week. What is weaker than a baby? What is weaker than a slave baby? What is weaker than a slave baby whose family can't even speak the language of the nation, who accidentally stumbles into the house of the one person in the world who probably should want to kill him more than anybody else because he threatens their livelihood? Yet that's exactly who God uses to prepare a deliverer. That's the way that God works in our lives. Jesus builds on our expectations while also bursting through our preconceived categories. When Jesus comes to anybody, whether it's a whole culture or an individual, in one sense, he always fulfills that culture or that person's deepest desires. He gives them the thing that they've aspired for, but at the same time, he challenges us. Jesus says to you and I today, I can give you what you're looking for, but only if you completely change your beliefs about yourself and what matters in life, and where your value comes from, and how eternity works. Because you've been trying to find me in all the wrong places, so I love you enough to redirect you to the actual place where you can find those things. It's me. I will deliver you, Jesus says to each of us, but I'm going to do it my way. You can have life, Jesus says, but it starts when you die to yourself. All your prayers will be answered, Jesus says, when you pray my Father's will instead of your own. Jesus is our Savior, and he is our Advocate. But instead of giving us what we might really want, always personal success, a lot of kids, a lot of money, happiness, comfort, instead of guaranteeing those things, Jesus fights hard to give us what we really need, which is unity with God. It's purpose and meaning and newness. Forgiveness is the beginning of that for you and I. And so, yes, Jesus advocates for us, but he doesn't do it in the way that our culture would prefer, nor does he advocate for any of our idols. He advocates for us. He sees through all of that garbage and gets to the heart of you and I in a way that makes him our hero instead of him making much of of us. And he advocates, church, for us to the point that we find freedom from our greatest enemy. It's not Egypt. Our greatest enemy is not the Pharaoh. It's not physical bondage. It's our own selves. We are the people who will hurt us the most. And God cares enough to tell us that. And to divide, using scripture, good from evil, right from wrong in our lives, to discipline us in a caring way. Not to punish us, 
but to help coach us and bring us and turn us so that we live our lives in a way that is fruitful, so that we live like people who've been delivered, so that we don't find ourselves at the base of the mountain worshiping a golden cow in Jesus' name. God cares enough to change those things for us. And so, so this is the origin story of Moses today. This is also the gospel of Jesus Christ that God, advocating for the oppressed, does that by sending an advocate, by sending a priest, and he hands us that responsibility as a royal priesthood today. And that God subverts our expectations with his perfect plan, which means he can save anybody, anywhere, no matter what. Let me pray for you. Father, thanks for the chance to be in your word this morning. I pray that as we look at the life of Moses, uh, we would really esteem you highly. We would see your fingerprints. We would see your brush strokes, your handwriting, and your signature. God, this is your story. This is the way that you've chosen to reveal yourself thousands of years ago to demonstrate your ability to go around and underneath and straight through national policy, cultural expectations, racism, sexism, abuse, oppression. You can destroy all of those things when you want to. And so, God, we want to be a part of that today. We want to be people who look around our world and see opportunities to participate in what we believe you are already doing, reconciling. God, would you give us the faith, and would you make us care enough to pray for the people in our lives who don't know you? Would you give us the follow-through to participate in you demonstrating your mercy to them by speaking up, by being clear, by being present? And God, would you remind us that it doesn't matter what our circumstances are, you can subvert anything in Jesus' name. And you will. We love you, Father. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.